So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, June the 23rd, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers episode number 213. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. I'm really glad that you're here and that you have the time and interest to join me for another segment based on topics and questions that were submitted during the past week. So I hope you find it valuable. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description below and you're going to see them all listed. There are some links that can help you out and provide some additional information and resources. So what else is going on? It's actually, look, I'm wearing a hoodie right now. That's because it's 67 degrees Fahrenheit outside and you're probably wondering what's that in Celsius. That's 19 degrees Celsius. 1.6 mile an hour wind, so it's not very windy, but good news, it was sprinkling a little bit. We need rain. We have a rain deficit here, but not as bad as those of you who are in the desert southwest, especially Texas right now. 107 with no rain? I can't believe it. Anyway, chances of rain tomorrow too. That's all good because everything is behind here. 88% relative humidity, so humidity is on the increase. Overcast, of course. We don't have bright sunshine coming through the windows, so that's helpful for this. And uh, the wildfire, they're telling us the smoke from the Canadian wildfire wildfires will continue through the summer, but today we're in the green zone. Zero impact, and probably largely due to the precipitation that we're getting, so that's good news. Uh, if you want to know how you can put in a question or a topic suggested for a future question and answer video, please follow the link down in the video description, which takes you to thewaytobe.org, and there's a page, The Way to Be. If you want to know where you can get one of these spiffy iron-on patches, that's right, no stitching is necessary, uh, you can get it from my Teespring, and there's a page marked uh, My Store or something like that on my website. And uh, because some people have been asking about embroidered ball caps, and I highly recommend you not get an embroidered ball cap from me. What I do recommend is you get the inexpensive iron-on embroidered patch, then you buy the ball cap that you want, or maybe it's a favorite that you already have, and then all you have to do is heat it up and iron it on, and it's there. It's good to go. So, that should help out with that. Let's jump right in with the very first question, which is from Jill in the Chicago suburbs of Illinois, the Windy City. So this is, while I know you do not use queen excluders, that's true, could you explain why some of the metal ones are labeled this side up? If I could understand the reason, I would remember which way it goes because they're not all marked, and uh, then I have to guess. Well, I'm just gonna take an opportunity here to go over queen excluders, and I do want to explain myself too. There are circumstances where you would need a queen excluder and that means if you're using upper venting and things like that uh, the bees do have the potential the queen could be laying in the upper super so uh, it's a combination of things uh, regarding why i don't use queen excluders one is that i don't have any upper venting used to in the past i did all that i don't have any upper entrances but if you look at my early videos i did back then and I did my own testing with queen excluders, and I put them over feeders during a period of dearth, which is when the bees were needing to get to reinforced honey surpluses, you know, so like sugar syrup. So I set it up so they could all find sugar syrup, and they were getting to it just fine, and then I put queen excluders over the top of it, and then I videoed to see how many bees could get through it, and it was amazing how many worker honeybees could not get through 
the queen excluder. No big surprise, bumblebees and things like that couldn't get through. But that led me down my path of not using queen excluders and just figuring out, hey, what happens when they don't use a queen excluder? Well, just as in this observation hive right here, they organize their resources, honey, mixed with brood and honey, ultimately nothing but brood at the bottom with a little bit of bee bread and stuff on the side. So bees organize themselves. I've said this many times over, but I'm just reaffirming it just in case you're new. Uh, if you have a single entrance, they're going to keep their brood near the entrance because that's where they get the fresh venting and so on. Of course, through the winter time, they migrate up into the hive, which is also why you should never have a queen excluder on in winter time. So what's a queen excluder? Queen excluder. What's it look like? Look, here's a black plastic one. They come in all shapes and there are some differences in the size of the openings because someone else had a question today about the queen getting through it. But I don't think the plastic ones are bad, but what's the difference? First of all, when you put a plastic one like this on your beehive, you almost can't tell it's there. Look how thin it is. So it goes between the boxes, the bees will propolize it up. And also in my experience in the past, with the plastic ones anyway, they'll even uh, close it up in some cases with beeswax and uh, propolis and things like that. And also when you're looking at your queen excluders, for those of you who want to use them, and I'm not against them, I'm just saying why I don't use them. Uh, you're more than welcome to use them. Uh, they have the size on them, but also some of them have kind of sharp edges from the plastic process, the mold that they came from. And it would only make sense that that would be tougher on your worker bees as they squeeze through them. Here's a gray one. What's the difference in this one between the black one I just showed you? The other thing is, when they get propolis and uh, wax on it, you can throw these in the freezer, and then you bring it out of the freezer while it's still nice and cold. You flex it and snap the plastic and wax right off of it. It makes it very easy to clean. So there's that. Then we get to the metal ones. This is my favorite metal design, by the way. If I were going to use a queen excluder, these are the ones. And by the way, there's no difference front and back as far as the distance here. Because that's another thing I thought of. Hmm, maybe it's like those reversible bottom boards where it's three-eighths on one side and a half inch on the other. As far as the opening goes. But it's not. Same on both sides. But this is probably the best made metal queen excluder. The other thing is you want to pay attention to these little bar spaces. And if you've got queen excluders that have been around for a while, please don't ever take your hive tool and stick it in the bars to pry this up. Another reason why you get this wooden trim around it, you can pry it up just like a box. And I could see no difference top or bottom other than that this bar going across the bottom um, would then be on the bottom and not the top. It doesn't change the opening. I can't think of any reason why it would make a difference if that were on the top or on the underside as far as a practical application of restricting the queen, which is its job, and allowing workers to get through. So, number one choice, if I were going to use one. Then we have a white plastic one, no difference from the others, and just run your fingers across, feel these edges. Are they sharp? This one has the smoothest and most rounded edges of the plastic ones that I could find. But you know what the problem is with this? I didn't write on it um, what company it came from. So, can't help you there. So the only one I could think of, look, here's another metal one. 
And here's what I want you to notice too. Look at the direction of the bars. It is the same on this one. So that's not the difference. What is the difference is when you pull up a plastic like this one, the directions are different. Does that matter to the bees? I haven't done that test, but I don't think it's going to impede their progress very much. So if I were trying to pick one that had a top and a bottom, I would say that this one definitely has a top, and that's because of the way the sheet metal is curled around it. See this opening along the bottom? I would say this side goes down, and the smooth rolled over side goes up. And uh, that's pretty much it. If you see that, see that's what I would consider the top. This is what I would consider the bottom. Does it change much for the bees? Whether you flip that as the top or the bottom, I really don't think it makes a difference. So for Jill, I don't think you're in a pickle either way. And uh, there are some commercial beekeepers that also don't use queen excluders. And I think that's interesting. Of course, when you're a backyard beekeeper, it's really easy. And some of you are pulling supers right now and I think that's a good idea. Get that spring nectar off, that spring honey, and separate that from your fall honey so you don't extract it all at the same time because we have different floral sources and you're gonna preserve those great flavors. So, uh, what else am I gonna say? Yeah, if you don't use the queen excluder, uh, you have to be able to look at them frame by frame, and if you see any brood in it, just don't use it. And uh, put that right back in until they backfill it. But, uh, and I base this too off of the feedback I got from ripout experts. Those guys are fantastic resources. You know why? They see so many feral colonies of bees in a variety of different structures with and without insulation, thin clapboards, almost no sheathing in the walls of structures. And that's Randy McCaffrey and Mr. Ed. Those are the top two that I know. See, I know there's a lot of other people that do ripouts too. And uh, there's JP the Bee Man, but I've never met him. I don't know him, but I can imagine that he finds the same thing. So those that I do meet and talk with, those that are, we're talking now over a thousand feral colonies looked at, single entrances consistently, large colonies of bees, and then most predictably, the honey resources are the farthest point from the entrance. And they're organized like that over and over again. And that's why I say, hmm, Single entrance, no queen excluder necessary. And I've not had in years a single larva or egg or anything like that coming out in my honey. So that's the good news. So to answer the question, I know I went the long way around the barn, but here's the thing. Uh, I don't think it matters whether you flip it up or down. It's, it's enclosed, it's inside, because that's the other thing I thought about condensation building up on it, where would that go? So you want it rolled down. Think of the fish scale principle, the overlapping things going down. I don't think it's a problem. Put it in with confidence. If somebody else knows of a specific reason why there's a top or bottom to the queen excluder, let me know. And because uh, the other part of it is, well, is it easier on the bees going one way or the other? No, because they're going up and down through the queen excluder. So again, it wouldn't matter. So let's move on to question number two, Banjo Billy from Charleston, West Virginia. I think Charleston, West Virginia, my sister used to live there. Anyway, it says, Banjo Billy here. I have three hives and this is my second year keeping honeybees. I'm absolutely hooked on bees. Caught two swarms this spring and hoping you can discuss 
the Demaray split on your Friday Way to Be channel. Thank you. Okay, well, yes, and that was the cover shot today. The thumbnail is the Demaray split. But here's the thing I want you to know. That's something from way back, and that doesn't mean that it's not good. There was an American Bee Journal article in 1882, I'm sorry, 1892, uh, about this split. And by the way, reading the way Mr. Demaray communicates, he was one of those beekeepers that tells you the way it is, and you simply do what he tells you. And anybody who doesn't do what he tells you is doomed, is headed for, for failure. And he even chicken slammed the people that were uh, old-time beekeepers. He says, those who are not willing to pick up on new innovations in beekeeping will find themselves stifled and failing and so on. That's the gist of what he used to say. So this is a guy that was pretty darn absolute. Uh, so what I want to talk about, I'll give you a brief rundown. And by the way, there's a book by Steve Rapasky, and it's called uh, swarm essentials. He gave the Demaray method a paragraph. That's all. He didn't even go into great detail about it. And uh, so it's a means of keeping your bees from swarming. That's the whole principle of it. And keeping your bees around. Those two things go hand in hand. If you can keep your bees from swarming, you're not losing 40, 50, 70% of the population of the workforce of your hive when the queen flies out. So the goal is to keep her in. I have my own methods for that, and that's why I'm also gonna plug my own, which is uh, simply to cage the queen because it ties into something that Mr. Demery wasn't dealing with, and that's for destructor mites. And we're coming up on the time when we could be creating a brood break, which reduces the population in the hive, also creates a broodless period, which means we can treat for varroa mites. But with this method, uh, the Demaray split method, which I, I don't use, and I did reach out to a lot of different people that have been keeping bees for a very long time, and uh, they found that it was not necessarily a great way to stop your bees from swarming. And a lot of this depends upon what stage of swarm preparation are your colonies already in. So if they've just got queen cups, a queen cup is the foundation of a queen cell. It does not have an egg in it, so you're not in jeopardy yet. When you go and do your hive inspection and you look in there and you see queen cells that are halfway developed and there's developing larvae inside of the queen cell, you've got an issue. They're going to swarm, they've decided. So this is a method and I guess his strongest point was that uh, he didn't want people to have to set up another beehive, which is exactly what I do when I'm creating a split as an insurance policy, which usually ends up being another colony um, but so my method is when you find queen, so well, queen, queen cells in production and you find that they're making preparations to um, swarm, then by collecting the queen when you come across her, putting her in a nucleus hive with a couple of frames of brood, uh, we just alleviated the population growth inside that colony because we just took their source of eggs out. We also reduce them by thousands of workers by pulling a couple of frames of brood, two to 3,000 uh, brood on each side of a single deep frame. So when you do that, we really are taking some congestion out of there. We take the remaining frames of brood and we push them together. And then we put drawn comb or empty frames on the outside of those. And now we've created extra space. So we remove the queen, can't swarm now. 
We remove congestion, which is one of the triggers for swarming. And uh, we provided extra space for expansion. Of course, now they're left. They have to make a new queen. But since they already had queen, swells, queen cells in production, then uh, it's not a big delay. It's not like we're leaving them just with eggs and waiting for them to build that. But the Demaray split method, as the drawing uh, shows here that I made, and if I could show that a little closer, I hope you can see this. But anyway, so here's your original hive, and this hive uses a queen excluder. And I wrote, the, drew, drew in the nice thick one because that makes it easier to see here. This is a double deep configuration. And your queen is found in the bottom box. This time of year, that's probably where she'd be. So the queen is here in the bottom box. We have to pull these top three boxes off. And we have to change the queen excluder. So you pull these top three boxes off, you set them aside, you take the queen excluder and you put it over the bottom box, which has the queen in it. You also in that process have pulled out all the surplus brood that you could find. And where did you put them? You put them in this other um, deep box. So you pulled the brood out of here, you put it in this upper box and you went ahead and spun out, as I just mentioned, any of your surplus capped honey right now, because if you're still in a nectar flow. And then you move this box to the top, you take these two supers, which are above the queen excluder, you put them directly on the queen excluder, which is now on the single deep box, which has the queen in it. By the way, this configuration over here is what some beekeepers use full time. So if that's what you're doing, you can't do this method. So anyway, you take the box that was the brood, you put that up on top. Now you have your brood up here and no queen to continue to lay eggs in it. And of course you flank those frames with drawn comb or foundation again, alleviating the congestion that's in the hive, providing room for expansion, extracting capped honey. And uh, then you put the two supers that are mediums or shallow supers, whatever you had, those are now down below. So now this is a honey cap over the top of your brood box. And now you've held the queen and you've slowed production. And then after how long, how long will it take you when you pull out frames of brood, you put them in another, assuming that second deep wasn't already brood, but you took uh, surplus frames of brood out of your deep bottom box. You left that queen in the bottom box with a queen excluder on top. And she's got two or three frames of brood with her because she has to continue to be productive. Now in that top box, uh, you've got brood in all stages, probably you've got some eggs. So with the eggs up there, you run the risk of them trying to build another queen if, big if, the queen's pheromone is not getting through the hive because that's part of the thinking, I read the article, uh, that the queen's pheromone, her mandibular pheromone, is reduced uh, through the colony because she's restricted to the bottom box. I can't say, now, you know, this guy is probably a beekeeping genius, but I can't say that uh, the pheromone would be impeded throughout the hive because the bees still have contact with the queen down in that bottom box. They can still move freely throughout the hive. Therefore, they can still spread her pheromone throughout the hive. So I don't know if it's a guarantee that they're going to start building queen cells. Uh, I think they think that the queen is still there. I think they think they're still healthy and that top box after 21 days Let's say an egg was laid the day you did this work. 21 days later, they're all emerging and you're broodless in the top box. And you've confined the queen to the bottom box, but she could continue laying because we also provide her with extra 
space so that they could build out. So we relieved congestion, we divided the brood, we pulled some frames of honey, and so we slowed productivity for that queen in theory, but the bottom box is a deep box. It's got 10 frames in it. And uh, if this was overseas, it might even have more than 10 frames. But uh, you've got 10 deep frames in there and the queen can continue to lay. So I'm not sure how effective the method is. And I know if you asked Mr. Demery about it, he said it was absolutely the most effective way and anyone who doesn't use it is going the way of fools, for example. I don't know how they talk back then, I'm just, I'm just guessing. So um, I think, just, just what I think, if you found queen cells, you're late. Um, you need to go ahead and pull the queens, what I would do, with some frames of brood, start a nucleus hive. Then, as happened in one of my observation hives right here, the virgin queen emerges, flies out, gets mated in a perfect world, comes back, and the colony continues on its happy way. But in the case of my middle observation hive over here, uh, the queen did not come back. So, they're queenless. Now what do I do? Well, if I had the foresight to set up a nucleus hive with the queen that I pulled from a hive that I saw had uh, queen cells under construction, and I banked them and saved them and created this little nucleus hive, now when I come across another hive, that is without a queen, I can go back to my resource hive now that's got everything in full production, eggs in all stages, I've got my queen in there, I pull a frame of brood with the queen and I install her right into my queenless colony. And that's the pheromone hostile takeover. We just talked about this with Dr. Robin Underwood. And uh, because even if you had a laying worker start, but that's on you, by the way. If you've got laying workers, that means you've been queenless for more than three weeks, and that means that you're not very attentive to your bees. I'm sorry, I'm just calling you out. So that's why you want to do inspections of all your hives. You want to touch base and see how it's going. Make sure you've got a laying queen in there uh, under 21 days so that you have time to react if you find that you have a queenless colony like me. I reacted over here. I have a queen sitting in my introduction cage there and uh, I'm putting them in, it's an observation hive, so I can't just pull a bunch of frames and stuff them in there. But if it were a standard Langstroth hive and they're queenless, I can pull frames with brood and a queen and I can install them into the queenless colony and then go back to my nuke, pull the frames out of the hive that I replaced with the queen and her brood, pull those frames out, resources, you know, bee bread, whatever happened to be there that is not in reproduction, and I put those in the nuke that I just uh, robbed out. And now they're back on their happy way. I'm sure they're happy about it. They get to make a new queen from the eggs that I give them. And uh, they're going to build out new queen cells. And that keeps them small, which is my goal with my resource hives. I don't want those populations going nuts right now. So if you have used this method, and if it is your means for swarm control, the beauty of it, according to the author, is... That you do it all with one hive. You're gonna be lifting a deep box because it's set up with a double deep configuration with two medium supers on top, even though supers are weighing 47 pounds this time of year. So you're gonna do some lifting and you can do some moving things around, but if you were inspecting the colony anyway, you're gonna be lifting. So if you find these conditions, you don't hesitate. Your queen excluder's already there. You jump right into it. I don't use queen excluders, so we're back to what I described before 
and I'll give you a link to also another method that I use other than creating a resource hive I cage the queen and that's because now what are we dealing with burrow destructor mites I'm happy to say all of these observation hives in here are mite free this year I still don't know why that's working I'm happy that it is I've been pulling the bottom trays and everything else and uh, I don't see a dead mite we're gonna keep going so here's the thing, what do I do with my larger hives to help relieve congestion, reduce their numbers, and uh, keep them from swarming, and at the same time, use that to my advantage? I create a brood break by caging the frame that has the queen on it and leaving her right inside the hive. It's kind of similar to what's described here loosely, because what we did is we isolated the queen and we couldn't keep her uh, we keep her from moving around. We didn't want to move her into another hive, right? So you put the queen on her frame. And the thing is, this only works when there aren't other queen cells already in production. So when we isolate the queen to a single deep, you know, we max out her production at about 6,000 bees, right? So I have a method for that, and I'm going to leave a link down in the video description associated with question number two, and that will lead you to my webpage where I describe how that creates a brood break. You're only caging the queen for 14 days. After that, you're going to be treating your colony because now everything is open and this is a means of controlling your varroa destructor mites with an organic method, which is oxalic acid vaporization. And you get maximum efficacy while all of those mites are exposed. And then we're back in business. See what just happened. So if you use it, I mean, this person wrote me two weeks in a row wanting me to talk about this. So my thoughts are kind of loose. Um, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying that I kind of, I feel like there might be some, some problems with it where it wouldn't necessarily be as clean and easy as, as it's described. And you would have to reinspect to make sure that they're not building replacement queen cells because the whole point is to stop swarming. And if they start that, they're on the swarm path. And if you find queen cells and you're just cutting them out, they have already decided to swarm. So you could just be removing the insurance policies, which there again, when I take you back to my method of if you find even started queen cells, remove the queen with her brood into a nucleus hive. And then if they don't reproduce and you know present you with a good queen that flies out, gets made, comes back and go back, goes back into production, then you have the insurance policy, you bring them back and you restore the colony. So I know that's redundant because I've said that many times before, but it's helpful and somebody might be new. I don't know. Maybe I attract new viewers from time to time. It can happen. Question number three comes from David. I was curious about my bees at night. So I found the entrance to two of my three hives, had the entrance covered with bees about the size of my hand. It's 11 p.m. 67 degrees and 81 percent humidity is this because it's too warm in the hive or a defensive position and they are very calm not aggressive why are they not inside at this time okay you find this a lot whenever there's a nectar flow on and this is this is not the only person that submitted this question in fact the second question number four similar thing Bees hang outside the entrances. It's called bearding. Sometimes a mass on the front of the entrance, especially when we have a big nectar flow on. 
So we have a lot of nectar, we have, and, and it also corresponds with humidity levels. That's why you notice in the beginning I read the relative humidity levels and I like to see if it's going up and down because we've had relative humidity as low as 47%, which means what? They can dry out their honey that they're drying down quicker than ever before. So the bee's method for drying out honey, so they're bringing in nectar, they're metabolizing that, they're adding their own enzymes to it, and that's what turns it into honey. And then what they're doing is they're passing it from mouth to mouth, it's called trophallaxis, and they spread it out in a bunch of cells. This is also why sometimes, if you're one of those anxious people that looks at your supers a lot, you can look at it and it seems like it's really full. The honey is spread out, all these cells have honey all over them, and they're all shiny. And you come back a day later and it's like a third of them. But the cells are deeper, and the honey consistency is more dense, and they're dehumidifying it. That's because they spread it out, more surface area, quicker dehydration, and then they reconstitute it in other spots on the frame. So you're not necessarily losing honey, it just takes up roughly twice the real estate in the hive when they first bring it in, and it's what we refer to as unripe honey. In other words, honey that has still a high water percentage. So right now, and, and I'm glad the humidity was included in the question because 81% humidity, these bees are getting out of the way of it because the bees' bodies, just a bunch of bees in the space, they're respirating. They're also contributing moisture to the environment. They're in the way. They get out of the way by bearding outside on the front of the hive. Now, now that I said that, are they, are they launching a defense? No, because when they're defensive, they come out on the landing board, but they are very animated. When they're defensive, they're not just clustered, sitting tight and hanging out. There's another potential possibility depending on the history of the hive. So for example, sometimes you get uh, a virgin queen or even a queen in lay that decides to depart the hive. So they're going to swarm. And when she leaves and when the rest of them leave, oh no, here's a rainstorm because I've done this to my bees before actually to stop them from swarming and uh, with the garden hose. But anyway, the rainstorm begins and instead of going anywhere, they end up staying outside because the queen's with them and they've decided to go. They're very stubborn about it. And instead they might cluster fully up underneath of your hive. There might be a big cluster underneath the landing board and that could have the queen in it. And that's acting as their bivouac location, even though they just left the hive interior and they're clustering on the outside instead of flying to a tree branch or a fence or something like that. How would you know the difference? You'll know the difference because uh, they stay the same if it's a cluster that's got a queen in it and they're, they're actually on their way somewhere and that's their bivouac. Um, if they're just because they're clustering outside because there's high humidity in the hive and they're in the way and they're trying to allow for that ventilation which is going to dehydrate things, uh, that size of that cluster will change. It'll expand and contract and they'll move in and out. And so 67 degrees, 11 p.m. at night, get back out there at sunrise at 4.30, I highly recommend it, 5 o'clock, whatever sunrise is, and uh, see what's going on landing board then, and you should see it reduced by two-thirds, or there may even be uh, no more bees on the outside of the hive. Now you know they were doing that because of humidity, not because you've got a swarm on your hands. Pretty straightforward. And some people say, well, that's because we're putting them in boxes, and these boxes are so bad for them, and they're not like trees, and they don't ever do that on trees. Yes, they do. I've been called, I didn't mean to laugh. Yes, they do. 
Um, I've been called to bee trees before in residential areas when the bees were swarming thousands of bees and what they were is just clustered outside the hive on the face of the entrance around the same time of year when the humidity was high and when productivity is high and they've got a bunch of nectar inside and uh, they move back in. So these things do happen wherever bees occupy cavities. So that's it. And moving on to question number four, Linda, Maryland. Let's see, Facebook beaks, it says, are commenting about their bees hanging on the entrance evening during rainy weather, even though there's plenty of space in the hive. What are your thoughts? Same thing. Those are my thoughts. And don't forget the first part, high humidity, rain. We know that rain is 100% humidity. But um, if there's been a nectar flow, if things are really active, even though they have extra space in there, they move outside. Second part of that, make sure if that stays static like that and they're being stubborn and even if it's raining and stuff and they don't even move in. Keep in mind, by the way, if it's raining on these bees on the outside, what are the odds they would want to go inside? Because now they were trying to help with dehumidification of the hive. Now they're all going to get their coats wet and go inside and bring all that in through the living room. No, they're going to stay outside. But if they're really stubborn, really cold weather, lots of wind and everything else, and it's not going on within the other hives. See, here's the consensus part of this, which is kind of good. If a bunch of people are noticing the same stuff, you have similar conditions where you are. They brought in a lot of resources and they're trying to dry them out. If you've got one hive that's behaving differently, pay attention to them. You might have a queen in there. They might be on their way. Check it out if it stays the same. Question number five comes from Shane from Monk's Corner, South Carolina. Contemplating building a long Langstroth hive and my other hives are all Langstroth. So for compatibility purposes, makes more sense than a lay-ins hive for me. I know you used full 2x12s in yours, leaving a few extra inches at the bottom. And my question is, do you think it would be worthwhile to make it even deeper? Maybe add an additional four to six inches under the frames in hopes that they will build free comb underneath, making the frame geometry deeper, helping the cluster in the winter, and also creating an opportunity for some cut comb honey. Do you think this would work? And more importantly, worthwhile. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, on my website, which is thewaytobe.org, uh, there's a page about prints and plans. And by the way, those are free to use. And uh, the Long Langstroth Hive has two options on it. And one of those, so you're right, it's a 2x12 construction for the sidewalls, but there's also a 4x4 added. 4x4. There's a 2x4 added, which gives you more space underneath for the same reasons that are described here. Although, the chances that you're going to get cut comb on the bottom of those frames that means beeswax built out by the bees and filled with honey and then capped. Pretty rare. What they most often do down there is they produce a drone comb. And when they do that, that lets you harvest your drones if that's part of your integrated pest management. And it's a way for you to collect beeswax. So, but I don't think you'll get meaningful amounts of cut comb out of that. And I also don't know if it's much of a benefit to go very much deeper than an additional two by four shim, which is down there for that purpose. 
And the bees keep that area incredibly clean, by the way, which I find very interesting. So if you're building them, uh, nothing's stopping you, by the way, from doing one half with a little, a little drop off and then the other half normal. So I would have the part that's, here's your entrance at one end. All of my long Langstroth hives have an entrance, entrance at one end, not in the middle, but so that we have this progression, just as I described for the vertical hives, no queen excluders. And so we have the brood at the beginning near the entrance and then it migrates and you get mixed brood and resources and you get pollen stored and then you get pollen resources and capped honey and then it eventually goes to nothing but honey frames as you progress back. And that's why when you go into your hive to harvest uh, your frames from your hive like that, uh, you start at the far end and you work your way back and when you hit the capped honey, now you can start pulling frames and you can even checkerboard them to keep it decongested. By the way, I just have to say it. The uh, horizontal hives, the long Langstroth horizontal hive is the easiest hive to manage. It's the most compatible. If, uh, if you're trying to work it with young kids that can't lift boxes or you wanna work it with anybody who is elderly and still wants to get involved with bees, uh, people that are handicapped can still get involved with bees and you can set those up the height um, horizontalbees.com uh, has a hive that they worked out with Justin that uh, it tilts. So the hive is on axles and it can tilt towards a handicapped beekeeper. These horizontal hives, for me, you know, as I get older, I could get frail. It could happen. And uh, I would go all horizontal hives by then. So as I get older, I'll get rid of my vertical hives more and more, the standard lengths because horizontal hives can be built heavier. Um, the work surface is easy and manageable. I have four inch wide uh, cover boards that you pull each one as you go and close them up as you go so that after you've looked at an area, it's still covered. The bees are very calm when you're doing that. There's no dropping and banging and bumping. And you wanna look at a frame, you pick it up and you've got your open hive top and you hang your frame right there and what's under it, the rest of the hive. So if your queen scooted off of there or if you drop something, it goes right back into the hive. And when you construct it, you build it at the most comfortable height for you, the beekeeper. So for me, those things are the future for my beekeeping. Horizontal Langstroth, and I like the Lance hive. I've got two of them. They work fantastic. They're full of bees. They're too full of bees. It's just everything is so unique with the Layens hive. Now, if you're one of those people that does all Layens and nothing else, then good for you. Those frames are pretty heavy, by the way. So once again, for those of you who are thinking about finger strength, wrist strength, um, the heavier, larger frames can also be a challenge for those people as well. But uh, you can get a Layens extractor and the person that sells them is Dr. Leo Sharashkin and it's horizontalhive.com is his website. Don't forget to tell them that I sent you so that you can pay the same as everybody else. So that's the thing. Um, there already exists the plan for what's being described here and uh, you have lots of options. Making it deeper than two inches I don't think um, would be that helpful. Now, one of the things that's very important with the horizontal hives, for those of you who live in colder climates, as I do, uh, the big change in my success rate with horizontal hives in wintertime, insulating the top. 
if you're going to insulate anything on a beehive, insulate the top. And they are just kicking along. In fact, I used my long lang to make three different colonies. And because I was late, I was a slacker. And I got in there and what was going on? Population was huge, wall-to-wall -wall bees, even in the middle of the day. If you're at two o'clock in the afternoon and you pull the lid off of a beehive and you are dealing with wall-to-wall -wall bees, in other words, you pull up a frame, you can't see the brood because it's all bees. Can you imagine what the population is at nighttime when they've all come back, when all the foragers are in the hive? It's a lot of bees. So because I was so far behind and I didn't have another hive to put everything in, we just made three colonies of bees out of it. And guess what? They snapped back so fast, it was almost annoying. And the other thing is, when we talk about insulation on your hives, sorry to retread this, but there's no reason to take that off in the summertime. That insulation on your hive cover in particular is hugely beneficial to your bees summer and winter. They help your bees maintain balance inside. So question number six comes from Brad and it says, question, when introducing a new queen to a hive, is it recommended to remove all attendant bees? Okay. And this comes up and uh, it's very easy to see right away. When you're going to install your queen, this, this question gets answered immediately. Um, there is a, a muff that I happen to have that I don't use, but I have it so I can teach people about it. And of course, it's not sitting here right now. But you take the queen in the cage, you put it in this little muff that's got a screen all the way around so you can see into it. You open the cage and you can let out the workers. And so now you have to catch your queen if she got out and put her back in the queen cage, plug it back up with the cork, and then go put the queen in by herself. It is true. So we can say this part. It is true that they're more accepting of the queen by herself than they are accepting of the queen with attendant workers that that colony is not familiar with or related to. Now, how often do they react negatively to those workers that they're not related to? Not very often. Um, I've had maybe one uh, colony of bees reject a queen that showed up in a cage and that uh, by the time you remove those workers and then put her back on the hive, did they now accept the queen in her cage and start trying to feed her? They're very sensitive to pheromones. Remember that when they're shipping out a queen with some nurse bees or workers that are going to feed her in transit or while she's in her cage, they're probably grabbing those workers from just any random hive. So they're not necessarily even related to the queen. They just instinctively feed her in transit. And of course, they can help keep her warm. They can generate heat and things like that. So um, the fail safe is to remove those workers and introduce them. Now there are other things that you can do and some of you are probably doing this right now. You've got queenless colonies. You're going to be introducing a brand new queen. Uh, if you want to reduce that stress, you can remove uh, the workers from it before you do it. Make sure you have control where you won't lose your queen. That's all another thing in itself. The next thing that you can do is you can mix up one to one sugar syrup by weight, sugar to water, and uh, add two teaspoons of Honey Bee Healthy. Now, Honey Bee Healthy uh, hasn't proven to be good for a lot of things. Okay, so there are a lot of claims about brood building and all of this other stuff, which would be true if you only use sugar syrup by itself even without that. 
So honeybee healthy can be added to extend the life of your sugar syrup so it doesn't spoil. So another thing that has been validated over time by a lot of different beekeepers who do not sell the product, that's key, um, it helps with introduction of a new queen. So you would spritz your whole, all your brood frames, spritz them with the two to one. If you've got open brood, uh, still don't spritz those. There's no reason to block up their little spiracles and suffocate them. So you spritz it around on your hive inside. Don't make the outside all sticky. And uh, the honeybee healthy provides them with a distraction. It gives them a new scent that comes in and a favorable experience. They have resources coming in in the form of sugar syrup. And that same smell that's on them now is on what? The cage that's got your new queen in it. Light spritz, don't soak your queen. And you put that cage in, it has been proven pretty consistently to improve acceptance. So if you even wanted to do that, just knowing uh, that you're introducing the queen, you don't even want to wait to see if they reject her. If you want to do that first, um, then you'll find that out, that uh, they'll accept the queen. Now, with that said, I have to comment on the other part of it. Look at their behavior when you set the queen cage on the top of your brood box, the backs of the brood frames. When you set that on there, they should come right up to her, extend their proboscis. They should start feeding that queen right away. If they're not, if they're not at all interested in her, or worse, if they react, double up their abdomens, they try to sting through the cage, you see their little mandibles biting at the screen that's keeping the queen in there, um, their reaction is negative. They don't want her. They don't need her. Now, if you've already got laying workers, you have another problem. So you have to now figure out, did you overlook a queen? Is there a virgin queen in there that's cruising around that is establishing herself and you jumped the gun because you weren't patient so you bought a new queen and you go to put her in? You need to read the room. If they're rejecting the queen, if their activity is really animated, they're not happy. If they're animated to get there really quick and they calm down and they're trying to feed her, that's a positive and you have a good uh, colony that needs the queen. So. I hope that makes sense. But introducing them, do you have to get out the workers? No, it's very easy to assess, see what their reaction is, and then if it's even marginally negative, go the extra yard, make sure you have a containment, and uh, get the workers out of there. And there's some people that are even shipping now with package bees. Uh, they ship the queen without any workers in her cage at all, but that see a package with bees already with the queen now. That's a very different dynamic than receiving a queen, FedEx, and then bringing her in a little queen cage and trying to introduce her to a colony. That's very different than creating an entire colony with a package. So I hope you understand the dynamics are different. And, uh, oh man, this is question number seven. Brad snuck in two. Usually I only allow one question per viewer, but I'll make an exception because Brad's a long time viewer, frequent commenter. So, hey Frederick, I thought of an interesting question. When a hive absconds or exits in times of danger like fire, how is it that they all can leave when at most times 40% of the hive are young nurse bees that are unable to fly? Okay, this is a good question and answers a lot of questions because even when I took my very first beekeeper course, um, I took a course in 2007 and I remember the instructor saying that uh, when you use your smoker, 
the bees are consuming the honey, making preparations to depart the hive as they would if there were a forest fire. Now all these years, let's fast forward and I understand more about honeybee biology. I understand more about their behavior and response to smoke and threats and things like that. They actually don't depart the hive when there's a lot of smoke and uh, they're actually just seeking deep shelter. That's why when we light puff the upper frames and things like that, they, they move down below. And of course, they're gonna surround and protect and fan away the smoke from the queen and fan away the smoke from the brood. So those are the core areas that they go to to protect. What we would consider the hive vitals for their survival. So if they flew out when there was smoke or a fire, they wouldn't just be you know, forgetting any newly emerged workers that probably aren't tough enough to fly very far yet, but they would be flying out with their queen who also can't fly. She's surprised, she's heavy, she's in mid lay, for example, and they say, let's go. She would fly out and expire in the forest fire. She'd be on the ground, she'd be dead. So biologically, it doesn't make sense that that's a preservation move. Likewise, if that was their response, if they were going to abscond because of smoke, uh, when we're smoking our hives for inspection, we would see them massing out of the hive, but that's not really what we see. What we see is them collecting and condensing themselves on each other inside the hive, creating a physical barrier from the heat in hopes of surviving as they would in a tree, in a forest, which is really what we're imitating. But uh, the other question, and I'm not sure that all nurse bees can't fly. The reason I say that is because when I see swarms, I don't just go up and nab the swarm. If you've watched my videos, and I know it annoys some people how long it takes me to make a swarm video because I sit there and I stare at the bees for a long time. And I can see newly emerged workers in the swarm. How do I know? They have all that extra fuzz on them. They're kind of silver colored. Um, there are young bees in with the swarm. So they didn't have to go. Now, does that mean they're primary nurse bees? Um, it may in fact be their first time out of the hive. So that's one of the things we talk about is uh, nurse bees when they find themselves out and away from the hive. And Randy Oliver talks about it when he's counting for varroa mites. He shakes a bunch of frames into a tub. He waits a minute. Most of the bees fly away. Those that remain have no idea where to go and they're very easy to scoop up then and use as your Varroa destructor might count resources. And so they're kind of, they haven't done orientation flights, they're bewildered, they depend on pheromones. And so the pheromones of the fellow bees from their hive, uh, those colony members all will attract each other once they're on a branch when they're absconding or even if they're, I mean, because when they abscond, you're right. Uh, if they abscond for another reason and the entire hive is just empty, that means the nurse bees flew out with them. Now, we don't know how far they went, um, but they're definitely maturing on the wing, so to speak. And they're um, staying cohesive because of the pheromones that the hive constantly, that swarm constantly circulates to one another. In the absence of the queen, that's why they're so unsettled and they're so disrupted. They're searching for that pheromone. But if the queen's there and all is right, even though they absconded for whatever reason, heavy varroa mite infestation, brood disease, 
uh, a harassing animal that's on them all the time. Here's another reason why they abscond, and this is what new beekeepers need to pay attention to, please, is that uh, there's beekeepers that look in their hives every other day. They pull the lid off and they go into their hives so frequently. First of all, that impacts the homeostasis of the hive. It impacts how calm and settled they are, and you're tearing into them constantly just so you can see what? What's going on? You could open your hive then one day and find that your bees are completely gone. They found it uninhabitable because the neighbor, aka the beekeeper, was so annoying and uh, probably had bad breath too because that coincides. And then off the bees went. And uh, so that's another thing. The nurse bees flew with them then. So they're not tough. They can't be guard bees. This is why uh, oftentimes you'll see somebody doing an inspection and it's a lot of fun when you're teaching people about bees and you've got them at your horizontal hive because that's the easiest teaching platform too because you get the most people alongside and you can show them stuff but you pull out that that frame of brood wall-to-wall -wall brood and, and most of the bees on that frame of brood are what they're nurse bees nurse bees are very passive they like launch no defense unless we have the genetics of Africanized bees but that's a different story but that's why you, you can push your finger around you can push those little bees around and they get out of the way and you can do little breath puffs on them and get them out of the way so you can look to see what's in the cells and stuff like that. They're not stinging and they're not biting because they're nurse bees. And some of them are housekeeping bees. So those are even younger. They're the ones that have just emerged from their cells. They're the most easygoing, less apt to sting bees in the hive. So an abscond, when they're all gone, all of them flew. So I know I went a lot of directions with that, but I'm trying to give you a complete kind of picture of what the dynamic is and why they're behaving the way they are. So, you know, leaving brood and eggs and things like that is the last thing they want to do. And it's very difficult to get them to do that. And smoking your hive doesn't cause them to move out. Question number eight comes from Jason, Jacksonville, Florida. I was on schedule to harvest a couple of supers of honey this weekend and it has rained daily for the past four days and is going to rain over the weekend as well. Thank goodness for all that rain, by the way. Just think about the people that don't have any. Anyway, I'm sorry. Is there a risk that the moisture content in the honey is higher because all of the rain and humidity? I don't have a dehumidifier set up like you have discussed in the past. Is it worth buying or should I wait? To harvest. Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, there's a term when it comes to honey. It's referred to as hygroscopic, and that means that will it, it will absorb moisture from the surrounding environment. It will also even absorb moisture right through capped cells of honey. So, not easily because those wax cappings, of course, reduce the surface area and they reduce the volatility of the honey that's stored. In other words, its ability to evaporate off further and so on. So, but the good news is it's in an occupied hive and when it's in an occupied hive, those bees do their best to keep it dehydrated. You're gonna hear them fanning. I don't know if you can hear in the video today that these bees are fanning in here that this entire building hums with bee activity. But uh, the good news is while it's in the hive, the chances of them taking on moisture and ruining the honey, extremely low. So the, the part of it that we risk the honey taking on moisture is when we take it out, we store it somewhere that has high humidity. 
and uh, then it runs the risk while we're not processing it. And this is why when people put it in bins or racks and things like that and they don't harvest and there it sits all winter long, during these warm, it's very critical that you put it in a stable climate environment if you're storing the honey that's not yet uncapped and extracted. And that's because when the temperature changes so much, you'll see something called the dew point. And those temperatures are provided for you. And when something hits that dew point, that means condensation is going to accumulate on that surface. And so when we get these warmer days after a cold night, condensation is going to form on the surface of your uh, your beeswax and, of course, the stored honey. And you do run the risk of that honey taking on moisture and potentially getting ruined. Capped honey, lowest at risk, but your uncapped honey, a percentage of the frames that some people pull, is still uncapped and therefore is very volatile and can take on moisture and also dehydrate, depending on the surrounding conditions. Good news though, based on this description, it's inside, bees are doing it. It says, I was on schedule to harvest, meaning didn't do it yet, and it's rained daily for four days. Bees are in there, they're taking care of it. I don't think it's gonna be a problem. Everyone, by the way, even if you're a backyard beekeeper, should have a tool called a refractometer. And I'm gonna put a link down uh, to a video that shows you what they are, how to use them, and three different types, from the cheapest, to an okay one, to the most expensive one. And the most expensive one is the MISCO, but it's also the most accurate. The cheapest ones are handheld analogs, you calibrate them, and you can use the MISCO to calibrate that. But anyway, you should have one of those. If this is your first year keeping bees, I think everyone should have their own pocket refractometer and should know how to use it to determine the water content of their honey. So, question number nine coming up from Ron in Greenback, Tennessee. It says, hello and thanks for taking my question. How did you know I would take your question? Not all the questions make it, by the way, but you're welcome. It says, uh, since Bettercomb is a synthetic wax, is it more resistant to the wax moth damage over regular beeswax? This is a very easy question to answer, and the answer is yes. It's very resistant to the wax moth larvae. Um, now, it does change over time. So one of the cool things is because you make it in advance, you don't want to wait until you need extra frames of drawn comb. And when we say synthetic, we don't mean that it's plastic and stuff like that. It's put together by, um, by biologists and by people that understand um, the science behind the elements that compose beeswax. So through biochemistry and everything else, they came up with a formula that consistently matches with what the bees make themselves as close as they possibly could in the lab. They actually tried to make better comb with beeswax, but as you and I know, the beeswax was not consistent. Therefore, if you're gonna make a production line and you're gonna have some way of mass producing it so that you can have it in frames and sell it for beekeepers so that they have drawn comb ready to go, uh, that inconsistency created problems, so they came up with a synthetic version of beeswax, which, by the way, your bees treat like normal beeswax. However, it doesn't smell like beeswax. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the brand new, I have brand new comb in that hive right there, but it's white. And uh, 
It looks very pure, and I don't know if you've ever picked it up and smelled it. Find pure beeswax, pick it up and smell it, and you'll find it has almost no detectable scent at all. And the thing is, uh, the more they use it, now they'll use better comb, and they'll start first by using it with food resources. So their nectar will be stored in it, and they'll use it for honey production and things like that. And then if they have nothing else, they'll use it for brood. And then as it smells more like the bees, that's when they start to put eggs in it, and that's when the nurse bees start using it for brood production. So I find that it gets used for everything that bees use beeswax for. So the reason I bring this up is after it's had brood in it, after the bees have utilized the better comb and it now smells like regular brood comb, which is the smelliest comb in your hive, it has propolis in it and everything else, so it smells good. It smells like beeswax, how we think it should smell. And that's when uh, the wax moths would begin to uh, chew into it and consume it. And we know that, what, and not the wax moth itself, I'm sorry, it's the wax moth larvae, which are wax worms. Those are the ones that are chewing their way through your comb. Uh, and if they decided to, if there was nothing else, they would chew through better comb as well. I mean, they can chew through plastic if they need to. They've chewed their way out of plastic bags in the past. Uh, but the key is they're not attracted to it when it's just better comb on its own. And so that means the wax moth is not going to go to it, lay eggs on it, and then have its larvae develop and consume it. That's why. So once it's in use, yes. When it's brand new, on the frame, ready to use, no. Question number 10 comes from Joe Fort Wayne, Indiana. I only had one colony make it through winter. On the first inspection this spring, it was booming. A few weeks later when I inspected it, expecting to add a box to them, I found no sign of a queen. No eggs, no larvae, no capped brood. I figure I lost my queen shortly before my first inspection because there was brood then, but in haste, I must have overlooked no eggs. Unable to get a queen, I bought a package. I installed the package in a box on top of the other colony. A few weeks later, when the new queen was established, I did a newspaper combination. Two weeks later, I have no queen again. Just capped brood. I hate to lose all the bees. Will they accept a caged queen and candy release? Or are they a lost cause? Okay, so we've got two weeks. So here's this is my advice. Two weeks, the critical time is after three weeks. So you've got a week to play with. And uh, this is something that I recommend beekeepers have in your freezer. It is called Temp Queen, or QMP, which is a synthetic queen mandibular pheromone. If you find that you think that you're queenless and you need a placeholder until you can get a hold of a queen, let's say they can't give you one for another week or two, uh, you put the queen mandibular phone, <laughs> the queen mandibular pheromone your temp queen, which is what Better Bee calls it. Uh, you put one of those noodles inside where the brood area is and you leave it there. And what it does is produces a pheromone that suppresses the reproductive instincts of your worker bees, which could result later in a worker bee layer. So what's known as laying workers, which means that they'll start produce eggs that produce drones and then they get hostile towards any new replacement queen. So what we're trying to do is 
suppress any reproductive instincts that your workers might have, which keeps their ovaries from developing. And then when you get confirmation that your queen bee's coming, that she's going to be there, you can even wait until FedEx or whoever delivers your queen bee. Uh, when you get your mated queen in, then you go ahead and remove that QMP, put it back in the freezer. You know, it's probably very reduced now. In the freezer, it's got a very long shelf life. At room temperature, it's good for maybe a week. So um, remove that and then you put your new queen in and they're ready for her. So much better way to do it. And so if it were me and I had this colony and I combined the two, um, I would definitely put another queen in there. Why lose them all? So, but I would have temp queen on hand. It's fun to play with. I'm doing lots of stuff with it. I still enjoy it. It's good. In fact, I had to take temp queen off of a couple of branches because the clusters of bees were so large on it that I couldn't tell if that was a real swarm or if they were just drawn to the temp queen. And now I couldn't tell if there's a queen in there without sifting through a big mass of bees. So I took my temp queen off of uh, the two trees that I had it on. Now I'm not putting it out there anymore. I just don't want a big cluster of bees. When they're the size of your fist, you know they're just drawn to the temp queen. And then how I use that is when I know that there's no queen because I can see them all, um, I take them off of there and then I go over to a nucleus hive or something that's just starting out. Once you remove the temp queen noodle, you know what those bees that have been on there for a couple of days will do? They will go into any hive that you put them in front of. So when I need fortified numbers on a nucleus hive, which is usually what it is, then I'll just take that branch, pull the QMP noodle off, and go and lay it right on the landing board. And the bees that are on that in that colony do not reject those workers. And the workers just smell an actual queen. And in the absence of the QMP, they march right in. So it's very easy to fortify colonies that uh, you have that might need some new numbers just like those because when we hive swarms especially this time of year um, often it's an after swarm which means that the queen that's at the center of that swarm is unmated so they're going to be quite a while um, in that new hive body and the queen still has to fly out still has to get mated and still has to come in and start laying eggs so the ability to fortify them with random bees that are just following pheromones around which is still interesting to me um, it's easy to do you just lay it on there and they go in i think it's really curious i also think this fortifies why when the queen flies out gets mated and then when she's on her return flight often you end up with a whole bunch of random bees showing up at the hive and moving in all of a sudden because they're following pheromones and i find that the bees are following these pheromones in very random unpredictable ways so they're just scooting around and joining other queens scent. Um, and it doesn't make any rational sense to me other than maybe they don't like where they live anymore. So moving on, question number 11 with Colin from Dunblane, Stirlingshire, Scotland. It says, I would like some advice on a queen marker pens numbered queen marking discs looking on amazon there are lots of queen marking pens available however i've yet to find one that actually isn't just a sharpie type of pen so i was thinking the numbered discs that must be glued on i assume where can i buy these what adhesive should be used 
Okay, so on Amazon, I don't know that you can find a bunch of their thorax labels for queens. And most of the people that use them though are queen producers. These are people that are raising lots of queens, hundreds of queens, and they get whole sheets of the little stickers and the stickers are not self-adhesive. So what I did is I scooted around and looked up different sources for those. I don't use them. I'll tell you that ahead of time. But uh, for those who want to know what they are, I can tell you right now that they sell a kit at Better Bee. They also sell a kit um, at Dedant. And uh, I looked at those, zero reviews on them, no instruction. So Better Bee had their sticker set, which had all the different colors, all five of them. Yep. And uh, that means you can use them year after year. So you have so many stickers to choose from. But the question is, how do they stick to the back of the bee, the thorax of the bee, uh, tight bond to wood glue. So, you know, you put that on a toothpick, put a little dab on the thorax of the bee. So you have to have the queen in a cage and under control. She can't be in the company of workers. They're just going to clean it off before it even gets a chance to set. So you have your queen bee in, I use the one-handed queen catcher. And you get a hold of her by her thorax, of course. So you should be versed in handling queens without damaging their limbs, without damaging their abdomen, and making sure that she's healthy. Then you put that little dab of Type Bond 2 wood glue, non-toxic, approved for indirect food contact, whatever that means. So part of systems that are exposed to food. And then uh, you stick that on there and then you let that stay. But I'd like to address the paint markers. So they're not Sharpies, they're paint pens, and that's kind of key. This is the company that I use. Don't know if you can see that, but I'll tell you what the name of it is. It's called Competitive Advantage MPD TAC 15 Paint Marker. And they're paint pens, they're under pressure. This is yellow, of course, this year we're red, but then you give a light touch and that's what you want. You don't want a, a Sharpie style. You want a paint pen that uh, enough paint accumulates on this tip that all you have to do is barely touch the queen's back and the paint transfers to her thorax. And there again, you have to hold her. Usually it's in just a minute or two that this stuff is dry. And by the way, these paint markers are good for all surfaces, glass and everything. So if you want to use something that'll mark your tools and stuff, so that has multiple purposes. The good news is it's only $6.95 and uh, you get any of the colors that you need. And these are the ones I've used for years. And I like them a lot and I recommend them without hesitation. Now, sometimes you'll come across these paint pens and they'll be sold on Amazon or these other places that you look um, for marking queens and they'll sell you an entire set of pens. I highly recommend you do not buy the entire set because now they'll be on the shelf unused for years and sometimes they don't function very well after they've been sitting around for a while or you don't put a lid down all the way and so on. So maybe get this year's and next year's you know, if you're saving on shipping or something and then uh, you'll have these paint pens. But there again, they're called Competitive Advantage MPD Tech. 15. Wherever you can find them, uh, you can get those. That's my favorite marker for tools for anything, including the backs of your queens. 
So question, so I don't, you know, I'm not a big fan of the stickers or the little, you know, markers that glue onto the back of the thorax of the bee of the queen. But if you're going to get big time and you want a whole bunch of them and you want numbers assigned to them, that's one way to do it. Uh, they're just expensive. Question number 12 comes from Meg in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Let's see. Thank you for the info in response to last week's question about laying workers. I learned so much. I have had another situation that completely baffled me. My questions are never just laying in the brood box and for the extra space, they always seem to utilize the super above. I don't generally mind since that is their overwintering honey box. However, in that configuration, I had placed a queen excluder above that super and had moved a Ross round box above it with another almost full super on top of the Ross round box. To my surprise, despite the excluder, I discovered eggs both in the Ross rounds and the super box above it. How is that even possible? And may I add, there were eggs in the brood box too. So the queen was just freely roaming around everywhere. If a queen excluder doesn't do the job, what options do I have? Ideally, I would prefer to keep the queen only in the brood box, which would make for easier inspections. To do so, I have considered adding an excluder above all of my brood boxes, which I've not done out of fear of limiting the queen too much, but now I am not sure that would even be reliable. Any advice? Okay. So information was left out of this question that I really need. My first question always is, is there an upper entrance? Is there an upper vent? And if there's an upper vent, is it large enough that the bees could get through? Is there any chance? These are just the possibilities. We're just brainstorming, sitting here, thinking about what could be going on. Any chance you have two queens? Because... Sometimes I'll be, an inspect, I'll be inspecting a beehive and I'll get to the brood area and I'll find the queen. We get all excited. Yay, there's the queen. And then uh, I might put her in a temporary holding queen cage while I complete my inspection and three frames down the road, still in the brood area. Boom. What's going on? There's another queen. You might have two queens in your hive. If you don't have upper vents and you don't have an upper entrance, you might have two queens. That's one scenario. Here's another one. So you should look for that queen. The next thing is, we talked about queen excluders today. What kind of queen excluder do you have? And queen excluders are generally not very expensive. So if this is your style of queen excluder, if it's metal, I've watched people use their hive tool and stick it right in these bars and pry this thing up to get it off so they could go to the next one down. Never do that. These tolerances for the opening of these bars are very tight. If you bend just one of these and your queen finds a way through, then your queen has easy egress in and out from your uh, upper boxes. So those are things to consider and if you can't find what might be wrong with your queen excluder and you're convinced, you know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you only have one queen, get a new queen excluder. What kind of queen excluder would you get? This kind, with a wood frame around it. 
it really doesn't matter which one you get. But uh, I like the wooden frames. And of course you have to treat it because it gets exposed to weather. Mine's treated in eco wood. So inspect the queen excluder, make sure it's in good shape. Double check to make sure you don't have two queens in your hive. I think that you, you might have two queens. I want to hear down in the comments section. Let's vote. What do we think Meg has? Two queens or damaged queen excluder or upper entrances? What do you think? And then I want Meg to update us on these other parameters. Is there an upper entrance? Is there venting? And uh, do a queen hunt. Mm-hmm. And whichever queen you find, let's see. If you find the queen up above, you gotta put her down below your queen excluder. By the way, there are a lot of very experienced beekeepers using single deep brood box management. And they're putting a queen excluder on it. But these are semi-commercial. These are sideliners that are trying to save a lot of time. They don't want to hunt for their queen all over up in any of the upper boxes. So they have a single 10 frame deep box on the bottom. For those of you who get concerned about that being a lifting issue, we aren't normally lifting our bottom brood box. It's staying. It's right there on the bottom board. So there are a lot of people in my neck of the woods that have very good success with a single deep brood box, queen excluder on top, everything above is the super. So could work. I don't know, but I really want to know what you discover and I hope that it works out and uh, just gave you food for thought on that. So anyway, moving on, this is the fluff. We're all done, by the way. That was question number 12. And uh, we've wrapped up pollinator week. So I'd like to hear from you. What did you do to contribute to beekeeping or pollinator awareness? Did you just stop mowing your yard? Did you talk to friends about pollination? Did you, you know, promote it on social media? Did you show up somewhere and give a presentation at a local nature center? What did you do? What's going on? What are some good ideas for how to have spent pollinator week? So, and so number one for the fluff plan of the week here is it's time to do mite counts. Obviously be aware, uh, most of us are coming to the end of a nectar flow and then there'll be a slight lull here in the Northeast. We're gonna get another nectar flow coming up. So we're getting into the time where we have a window of opportunity where brood should be actually slowing down a little bit and uh, where you can harvest some of the honey, as I mentioned before, checkerboard, pull some of the supers and leave them resources that they need. We don't wanna be feeding them sugar syrup. Please don't do that. Um, if you can leave them with the honey, if they're sparse and they don't have surplus for you to pull, don't pull it. So, um, and I know that those who are really needing an income from their bees, pull all their honey, they feed them heavily with sugar syrup and then they wait until the next nectar flow, then they pull all the sugar syrup off and then they go back to honey supers again. So if you're a commercial sideliner, that's probably what you're gonna do. Sugar syrup is cheaper than honey and you don't want them to consume their honey and all these other reasons why they do that. For the backyard beekeeper, people like me, um, don't feed anything, leave what they need on. And then when things build up again, provide them with the surplus frames and things so they can fill it up for you again. So mite treatments and be prepared to do other things while you're in there make a list of what you're looking for on a specific hive and be as expedient as you can when you go through it. Find out what you need to know, then button it up and keep a logbook. Document everything. I don't care if you have two beehives. Keep a logbook. And here we have a whiteboard that has status on it. 
it's very helpful because you'll forget things later. Moving on. Number two, check the joints on your boxes for leaks and things like that. A lot of beehives go through a lot of stress and you'll find that your bees are getting in and out of your hive in places that you might be surprised about. So think about repairing, mending, or even swapping out boxes during your inspection. You're there to inspect anyway. Bring your new box along. Pull all the frames as you inspect out of your old box, the crappy one that you need to get rid of and put the uh, frames into your new box and then restore it. So it's a great opportunity to combine activities. What else can you do? Maintain water sources. A lot of people are in droughts. I'm using those water fog nozzles, which are really entertaining. It's, but the problem is they're dead quiet. So they make a little noise, but they're just fogging moisture into the air and they're making uh, the cinder block wall that I made they're making the surfaces wet and the bees land on there and they lick up the moisture from those surfaces. Zero opportunity for drowning. And it provides a cool damp area and you can grow tropical plants around it. So you can do stuff like that that needs a lot of water. But fresh water, here's the other thing I noticed. The demand for the salt water is up. There are a lot of bees going after the one teaspoon of sea salts or Himalayan salts, whatever you want to put in it that is a sea salt, not just iodized table salt. That's not what they need. Uh, but if you can put a teaspoon, Morton has a very good sea salt. And one teaspoon per quart of water, put that out near your fresh water too. Leave both. Don't try to combine everything. Please don't add salts to sugar syrup. You'll have no idea what it was that they needed from that. And please don't feed sugar syrup at a time when you've got honey supers on. We want everything in that honey super to come from a flower that lives in the environment, not from a mixing bowl. Okay, my lights are telling me it's time to wrap up. So uh, mark all your new queens, be prepared. So if you don't mark your queens, uh, this would be a good time to learn. If you've got somebody that's experienced and you want to know how to do it, invite them over. And as you're doing these inspections, when you're doing your mite counts and things like that, remember, try to do as many of these things in one visit to the hive that you can and bring the extra equipment along that you think you might need. So again, you're not coming back, getting at it again, putting it back together, and so on. Uh, and look for queenless colonies and consider at this point in the year of combining them with queen right colonies. So if you've got a weak colony and you're just late, you, you're terrible as a beekeeper, you didn't know that they didn't have a queen and it looks like they might have a laying worker. We can fix that fast by combining them with a colony that has a queen that's queen right and lots of great pheromone there. And we can just cancel out those laying workers by combining them and uh, use the newspaper method, but they're going to combine fast anyway. Let's see what else. And update all your records. If you don't have a spiral notebook or a three ring binder or something like that that you can write your details in, there are apps for your phone, which by the way, I have to admit, I don't use this very much. And that's because when you have bee gloves on and things like that, your phone doesn't, you can't touch it, right? So I've got bee scanning and I've got this Beekeep Pal app that I use. Now, one of the advantages to something like this is I can go through and, oh, here's the hive. I take a picture of the hive. I take a picture of the conditions in the hive. So it becomes my log. 
don't have to write anything down. Here's another option. You don't like that because you don't want to get a subscription. You get a voice recorder. There's a voice recorder. Every phone has a voice recorder app on it. Built in. You don't have to buy it. I was looking around for apps that you needed to buy. All I have to do is hit the voice recorder and go, hmm. Observation hive number 31. Obviously under excellent management, superior to most beekeepers. I think this guy knows what he's doing and the bees are demonstrating that each and every day. End of recording. There's your entry. Saw the queen. Queen's marked. Had a marked queen. Queen's gone. And then later when your hands are clean and you're inside and you're sitting down and you're drinking your Long Island iced tea or whatever it is you do, that's when you break out your three ring binder and Play back your recordings and this is a great tool. So you have lots of options for getting the information down and note the parameters. No rain for three days, bees are clustered on the outside, high humidity, uh, only Hive 27 was doing that and so on. And then that way you update and then you'll find out as years pass you get a really strong consensus about what goes on at what time of year and uh, what you did to take care of that and whether or not it worked or not. So I think it's great. I want to thank you for being here and spending your time with me today. And uh, I hope that you found it useful. If you have, again, a question that you would like to submit to be considered for a future presentation, please fill out the form on the Way to Be page on uh, thewaytobe.org. Now, maybe you have a question right now. You're sitting here and you need to talk to somebody this minute. I need to know something. I need to talk to beekeepers. Uh, you go to Facebook. Some of you don't go to Facebook, but you should. And there's a group there. It's called The Way to Bee Fellowship on Facebook. If you go there, there are beekeepers from all over the world. So 24-7, there's going to be somebody there. You can pop in, make a comment, make an observation, ask a question, and there's going to be someone there that's going to be able to answer that question or maybe help you go in the right direction. So I highly recommend you join that Facebook group and uh, maybe you'll have a good fellowship and make some friends in the, in the process. So thanks for being here. Have a fantastic weekend.